Welcome to this APTA podcast. Welcome to PTJ Author Interviews. PTJ Editor-in-Chief Alan Jetty talks with authors about the most interesting and sometimes surprising aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty. I want to welcome listeners to this latest PTJ podcast. This is Alan Jetty, Editor-in-Chief of PTJ. And today, I'm very pleased to have as my guest, Dr. Sabrina Eggman. She's with the Department of Physiotherapy at the Bern University Hospital in Bern, uh, Switzerland. Welcome, Dr. Eggman. Hello, Dr. Chetty. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm very excited to talk about you of our study. Well, I am too. Uh, Let me give a little summary for our listeners and then we'll talk about it, okay? Yes. Uh, The title is Early Rehabilitation Interventions and Physical Therapy in Adults Who Were Critically Ill with COVID-19 Pneumonia. This was an observational study, and the authors analyzed time to first edge-of-bed mobilization in 168 adults. They were critically ill with severe versus non-severe COVID-19 pneumonia. They all required ICU care, and they were in a tertiary care hospital in Switzerland. Uh, The early rehab included in-bed activities, edge-of-bed and out-of-bed mobilization, standing and walking. And in this cohort, the median time to edge-of-bed mobilization was just under four days, with disease severity and advanced organ support significantly delaying the time to edge-of-bed mobilization. Is that a fair summary? Yes, that um, it's pretty much what we did, yes. Okay. Well, let's start talking about the the context. In your article, you talked about in Switzerland, you experienced a significantly large second COVID-19 pandemic wave during the winter of 2020 into 2021. And you reported uh, 3.6 million cases in a a population of only 8.5 million. I was really struck by that. That was a very large um, incidence. You also note that 15% of the patients hospitalized with COVID-19 were admitted to uh, the ICU. Do you know from your uh, work in this area how those data compare to other uh, industrialized countries? Yes, I um, had a, another look again, because there are a lot of data in the internet, right? Like World in Data, for example, publishes cases um, country-wise, and you even get um, seven-day population averages. So compared to the US, for example, we had a larger case-wise second wave. So, um, and the wave was also, it, it um, went higher up and peaked a bit earlier than in the US and compared to the US, we had a higher peak, but um, the US curve was a bit longer and flatter. So the average case base was in the end, maybe a bit more, but our was just very early and very high up. And that's maybe because we, ha- we didn't have any um, restrictions at that time. And then the wave hit very early on and um, until masks and everything came back. My sense from reading in general is that happened in other European countries relative to the U.S. 
that the wave was earlier than what than what we experienced. Yes, it it it, is def it was definitely earlier than the, the U.S. It was also earlier a bit than the U.K., though they reached a bit later, almost a similar level, but not not as high as our peak. Um, compared to Germany, though, our our numbers were much higher. That's interesting. Yeah. Regarding the, the percentage that was admitted to the ICU, I, I do not exactly know how it was in other countries. But when I look again at our world in data, it seems that the numbers were more similar, interestingly. So it might also be due to testing, um, that maybe the testing regimes were not um, the same in the countries, because in the end, the UK, for example, had higher patient numbers in the ICU compared to Switzerland. When we talk specifically about edge of bed mobilization, the numbers that you uh, write about in your article were quite striking. In Switzerland, you achieved 33% active mobilization of mechanically ventilated patients prior to the uh, pandemic, as compared to 24% in Germany and 16% in the U.S. So almost a doubling as compared to the U.S. Why do you think uh, the percentages are so different in those countries? It's quite striking. I can, of course, only speculate. <laughs> I, um, it, it's certainly probably different healthcare systems. And of course, these studies, there were point prevalence studies that happened only on one day, where, where the authors looked at how many patients were mobilized on that day. And then, of course, if you are lucky, you get a day that more patients are mobilized. So it's very yeah, individual. And also it depends on the numbers of centers who are involved. And um, I think culture is very important if you look at early mobilization. So if you include more centers that have the early mobilization culture, you will be more likely to get a higher number. So yeah. that might be some of the reasons. Sure. And um, they might be more motivated also to participate, for example. So um, our center is not usual care, I think, because um, we published a randomized control trial also on early mobilization, and it was criticized because um, our usual care is too good yeah. and doesn't really reflect what people are doing. So. Yes, it's still very difficult to say what really is usual care, and I think it depends on centers and cultures. Well, all I can say is that's a criticism that I'd be happy to, to take, that your care is too good. There's a lot of interest in the United States in early mobilization, and I was struck in reading your article that you said there's no consensus in the field as yet as to what we mean when we talk about early rehabilitation or early mobilization. Why do you think that's the case? It seems rather important that we get some clarity as to what we mean when we're talking about this. Yes, that would be very important. It has recently been discussed in an article, in a um, scoping review, um, how everyone defines early mobilization differently, and it certainly does not bring the field forward. We need to talk about the same things. I, I think reasons might be that we do not really know the best dose of early mobilization yet. So we do not know what is the minimum that should be provided and what is the maximum, because clearly we cannot treat all patients the same in the ICU. 
they, they differ, they're very heterogeneous and there might be a minimum and there might be a maximum dose and we do not really know what lies in between or, or, or how to define that yet. There's also some see it like as a con everything that's contrary to immobility. So every movement is already the contrary of immobility. So that means mobility. And they, they see, for example, passive mobilization as mobilization. And now when you look at, at data, like activity is defined by bodily movement produced by skeletal muscles that result in en energy expenditure. And we have seen that, for example, passive cycling increases oxygen consumptions in these critical ill patients. So technically it is an activity. And if you, if you use um, neuromuscular block blockers, oxygen consumption does not increase, and, but both are passive. So I think that's, that's the difficulties we speak about when talking about early mobilization. I am surprised that people would include passive activities as part of early mobilization. That's not certainly what I thought it would entail. Yeah, it, it, I agree. It, it, it is surprising. But then again, I also think if I'm cycling and I increase oxygen and it might even increase oxygen that the, the balance of oxygen demand and um, consumptions are not met. So I, this is a quite a hard training in that case, in a septic patient, for example. And so um, that's, that's making the, 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 the definition harder. Well, given our discussion about the definition, my next question, I know it's gonna be a difficult one because if we can't even agree on a definition, the next uh, issue is what do the data suggest about the uh, efficacy of early mobilization in these patients? Well, there are studies um, that have just been published. Two important studies have been added to the field, like just in the last two months. One was the team trial, which in, um, investigated very early high intensity um, compared to usual care, which was also a better usual care because it was already quite good. And they included 750 patients and they did not find a difference, but a trend for even more adverse events. Oh. So the study, for example, shows us that there is maybe indeed a ceiling of how high we can go. So the intervention group, which was really high intensity and has been pushed, was probably too much. So now we first saw the ceiling of where we can get. And the other study, interestingly, was almost the opposite. <laughs> the, the control group had no physiotherapist almost, no physios in the ICU. And the intervention group had physio and occupational therapy very early on. They re received um, edge of bed mobilization very early on actually as well and the outcome after one year was cognitive improvement and the intervention group was significantly better with um, they had less uh, cognitive impairment so here we again i think we we have one study that showed us here's the ceiling you can do too much and one study is you that's the bottom so no physiotherapy is not an option for example right so that's where we are in the field currently. Where were those studies done, if I might ask? Do you know? Uh, the, 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 one, the second one was done in the US in a single center. And the team trial was done in many centers all over the world. It was led by Carol Hodgson from Australia. 
So there were certain several centers, UK, US, Brazil, Germany. I'm surprised that such a large study would allow the control group to have such a high degree of active mobilization. It makes it very difficult to know how to interpret that finding. Yes, they, they actually included centers that have experience with early mobilization because they wanted to be the intervention to be um, well done and, and, and they wanted to do, have senior physiotherapists do the intervention yeah. because it, it really pushed to the highest level. So they like they didn't start with slowly sitting up and then slowly go to standing. They started with standing as long as possible. And then if the patient was tired, they had to sit for as long as possible. So it went down and that seemed to have been too much. Yeah. But that it doesn't mean that early mobilization doesn't right. help. It, right. um, it's just compared to other stepwise right. mobilization. Stepwise seems to be better. It would have been nice to have a third group. But let's talk uh, specifically about your study. In your sample, the median time to edge of bed mobilization was 3.9 days. And you did see significant differences between severity subgroups. It was 2.5 days for the non-severe and 7.2 days for the severe. And 80% uh, of the patients received uh, physical therapy within uh, 48 hours. So those are really very impressive data. How, how were you able to achieve that? Well, thank you. And I was also actually a bit surprised when seeing these numbers. I thought they would be a bit higher. That's just was my impression from clinical practice. But I think we achieved it by teamwork, mostly. Like interprofessional, everyone. And it and, and goes back to our culture. Everyone aims to bring the patient to, to a sitting position in order to get them out of the ICU and get them home again. So the physician, the nurses and the physios, they all work towards the same goals. Um, we have automatic referrals. So every patient is, is screened by a physio every, every day, well, every um, day during the week. And for the COVID, waves it was also every day so also on the weekend so that's probably why there was no delay in yeah. getting a physiotherapist to the bed yeah, and um yeah yeah so um physio screened every day they in the second wave where we had these huge numbers they um were there also in an uh, evening shift to mobilize them in the evening or to help proning and i think our teamwork, our culture, and that we screened early were probably the main factors that we achieved this. Did you um, experience many adverse side effects with this early mobilization? Unfortunately, it was a retrospective study, right? And we unfortunately do not um, continuously register adverse events in our data system. And so I cannot really answer that um, with data. Anecdotally, I can tell you that patients were a bit more sensitive to small changes and that we had to go a lot slower than we usually did. So that goes back to the stepwise progression. So we really, I had sometimes turned patient on the side and I had to wait for five, 10 minutes that they could um, recover. And then we sat them up a bit in the bed with the head up. And again, we waited 10 minutes 
and then only we sat them on the edge of the bed. So anecdotally, it took much more patience and time to set, sit them up safely. So we would never have done the high intensity one from the other trial. It, I think it would also have led to adver more adverse events. Right. Yeah, not surprisingly. And, and again, not surprising to report that patients who were uh, ex on extra uh, corporeal membrane oxygenation or ECMO and those that were using high sequential organ failure assessment scores, they were significantly associated with delayed edge of bed mobilization and quite substantially 13.7 days as compared to 0 0.3 days. So in your experience, um, how do you approach those patients who have high SOFA scores and are using ECMO to achieve early mobilization? It must be very challenging. It is very challenging. And I think that's um, worldwide the case. And um, of course, the question is also, can early mobilization be achieved in all of these patients? We, they might really have been too sick to do it. And only on day 13 days later, two weeks later, they were stable enough. So we, there might be contraindications. And, and our approach is, is again to go very slowly, um, interprofessional team, first sit up, just in the bed, see how it goes. If, if there are inguinal cannulation, check if the flow from the ECMO is good, if you bend the hip. And I remember particularly one patient, for example, we had to sit, sit him up and stand him up and we needed the, the lead physician on the bedside who adjusted the ECMO. And it, so it was again a team effort. So it really needed everyone, the nurse, the physio, the physician, who adjusted the ECMOs and um, so that we could do that safely. So small, small steps, is it really? Yeah. And the sequelae of these ICU um, episodes are really troubling. Uh, you report 80% of the patients in your cohort who had severe COVID-19 pneumonia had confirmed ICU acquired weakness at discharge from the ICU. How does your institution or the institutions in Switzerland in general approach follow-up with these patients? Because that's that's a huge problem. Yes, indeed. That's that, that these numbers are huge. They are also a bit higher than our previous numbers. Before we had about 60% of ICU acquired weakness in patients who stayed at least three days ventilated. So it is a bit higher. They, they also were much sicker than our previous cohort. Um, so the, the, the trajectory of recovery is mostly they go to the ward. They are continued to be seen by physiotherapists to continue more or less the stepwise protocol of aiming for higher uh, mobility of endurance and cycling, walking, stairs. And, uh, several of them went to a rehabilitation center. We were a, a referee center, so we were sent a lot of patients. And so we sent them back to other centers. So that's, that was a bit, we couldn't follow them up because they were, as soon as they were stable enough, they were sent to another cent to the center back again. So I, that was the varied. I know you didn't look at this in your study, but uh, are you familiar with evidence on, let's say, 
12 months post-discharge from the ICU who people who have uh, ICU-acquired weakness, what do they look like uh, 12 months later? Well, we in our RCT, we did a secondary analysis of that at six months later with the um, quality of life questionnaire. And it was surprising, actually, because our population, there were 60% who had ICU-acquired weakness. And that hospital discharge, there were significant differences between ICU-acquired weakness and no ICU-acquired weakness in functional tasks and also in the six-minute walking test. But six months later, in the healthcare quality of life questionnaires, there were no differences anymore. That was really surprising. And might be the trajectory, because often they go in a rehabilitation center. But I also have to add that the, the physical healthcare, or the physical quality of life was still below average in both groups. Yeah. That, that's the key question. How do these people do long term? Um, well, Dr. Eggman, thank you uh, for taking the time to talk about your study. Um, I really enjoyed the article. I think you're, that's important work. And actually, I'm curious, are you following up on this work? Uh, you want to spend a moment talking about if you are doing follow-up studies or other related work with this patient population? Hmm. Well, we, we do not uh, really follow up this um, cohort anymore because now the population changed. We do not see the really RTS type of COVID anymore. But I still think that what we did is good to, to do again, maybe in five years, because it's, it's a good analysis. How are you doing? Um, do you meet your own goals? Do you really mobilize the patients how you want them to be mobilized? And um, I think we should do that regularly to also check um, if we provide the quality we want for our patients, because we will all want the best for our patients, right? Well, thank you, Dr. Eggman. And I encourage listeners to take a look at the article uh, in PTJ. I enjoyed talking with you. Thank you. Me too. Thank you. You can find more APTA podcasts like this one on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, in Spotify, or by visiting apta.org slash podcasts. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.